Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 223, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, are we about to see more and more schools banning cell phones? We'll discuss why that might be the right move. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest discusses the art of talking with children. In other words, how to use back and forth conversation to get in sync with your students. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by a friend, Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am doing fairly well. You know, it's June. It's really hot outside. Um, That summertime fever is all over me, but also, you know, the mad dash to be prepared for a brand new school year. We were talking right before we pressed record here and you were saying you've been in meetings all day long, like I guess planning meetings. When you say planning meetings, what's that mean? Yes. So one of the things that we have to do today is to take a look at our student numbers that are rising into our new grades, compare them to the number of units that we have slotted. And we have to check that against, you know, cost benefit analysis. And if we have to cut units or move teachers, and then we're looking at um, what we're offering our secondary students, making sure licensure is appropriate, just lots of things to talk about. And of course, um, organizing our leadership training for when we return in July. It's a lot to do since we are moving to the modified calendar. Our teachers return. July 19th. Wait, that wait. Is... Oh, I, I missed this. I knew you guys were talking about it, but yes. I didn't know this was official. So you guys are going to yes. the, well, you don't call it year-round school, but it's... Nope. It's a it's... modified calendar uh-huh. because um, basically we start school earlier. We are still offering the same number of instructional days as required, but what we would normally do for two or three weeks in the summer, we are offering intercessions um, in October and in March, and that's going to help allow us to help some of the learning loss and address some of our students who need um, a little bit more academic support, and then um, follow up with a fall break and a spring break. All right, so I just finished my first year, so did you. We both have kids that are in a school that just switched to that, and you then you teach in this other district that is now going to it. Uh, I'm sure there's probably listeners out there who um, are curious our thoughts. Me as a parent with a semi-flexible schedule, I loved it. Like I like the fact that summer's a little shorter, but we open up vacation times in the spring and the fall. So it's not like I only can travel or visit places in the summer. Now, if your work schedule isn't super flexible, I could see how you don't like that. Well, from the leadership perspective, I think it's great because teachers need an opportunity to recharge, um, to participate in professional development, or even to, you know, make a little extra money by working the intercession because that's mm-hmm, technically right. not contracted time. But I also think it's great for those kids who really need that extra support. And in this district where our children attended, those parents that of students that were, you know, selected, they had the option to opt in or out. And right. in my child's uh 
case. He did not need any tutorial or, um, you know, enrichment support. So he got to sleep in every day for two weeks and it was the best thing since sliced bread for him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think having the shorter summer, of course, reduces the summer slide, which we all know about. Um, and also as a parent, like we, after like mid to late July, you're kind of like, all right, when's school starting back up when this way? Well, it is starting back up at that point. And you know, it's, it's a good thing in my opinion. One other thing to think about, and it's, this is not in every school community, but in a good number of them, there are a lot of families that take advantage of the cheaper prices for vacation. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, going to uh, Disney world is much cheaper in the fall. Well, now they can do that without pulling their children out of school for seven to 10 days. Not just that, but uh, less crowds too, or fewer people in the parks. Yes. Um, and that yes. fall, those fall breaks. Um, cause I don't know that Disney world's cheap for anybody anymore. It's gotten ridiculous, but, but yes, absolutely. Well, I guess maybe not the mm -hmm. entrance prices, but it just depends. That's, that is a time that there's not a high vacationing time going on. So right. I think, um, airline prices might be a little different. That's true. They find hotel specials. Yep. We're, we're going, we're going in, uh, the late September, early October because of this oh, new school, awesome. this school, new school year. So we're booked up and yeah. I actually pay just a little bit every now and then. And hopefully by the time we get to September, we'll be paid off. Um, for that's that wonderful for you all. I am not, um, in that group of people who will be off with the children at that time. I'm so sorry, I, I do not mean months. to, I do not mean to <laughs> rub it in. Oh, no, it's <laughs> totally fine because think about it. When we have these intercessions, um, the very next week is considered a break. And so I'll get some days off for fall. And of course, I'll get my spring break. All right. So I want to talk about a topic like so intercessions and, uh, you know, the the calendar switches. This is kind of a, a trend we're watching sweep through the country. Uh, at least that seems that way from where I sit. I think there's something else happening that I wanted to talk about because I'm curious if this is something else that's about to sweep through the country. And that has to do with cell phones in the classroom. I mean, if I roll back the clock back to the late 90s when I was in school, uh, we weren't allowed to bring cell phones or pagers into the school, even though they existed. Correct. It was very strict, and that was normal for us. As anyone listening probably knows, we saw the pendulum kind of swing where cell phones uh, started to be allowed in the classrooms, and they thought they could be learning devices. I bring all this up because there was a, a gentleman on Twitter, a teacher, who um, posted an eight part thread about how he used to be pro phones in the classrooms felt like it'd be a learning device. And now he's completely changed gears and he's explaining why I also see in Pennsylvania, there's a district that ran a, a test, a pilot school where they no longer allow cell phones. Um, a legislator liked the results so much that he's now proposing a law statewide in the state of Pennsylvania, not to allow cell phones um, in schools. And I, I think our County Lamar County here in Mississippi yes. is about to change the rules. And I haven't, actually seen the right up the change but uh -huh. so so is this something that we're going to see everywhere you think and is it doable what are your thoughts well i'll be honest with you there's still a great number of school districts like mine where where cell phones are not um prohibited however you just find cases where they're pulled out and used for the wrong reasons a lot of cyberbullying happening and and inappropriate behavior being recorded and being turned into entertainment because of those types of things and privacy, I do see the trend shifting. It's just too much information reaching the masses too fast. 
the the guy on Twitter who I, I mentioned did the thread, his name's Tyler Rablin. And he said, he first says, you know, look, I was all for this, you know, great, a device in the classroom. He says, now when a student picks up their phone, they're immediately bombarded with notifications and noise, arguably none of which is relevant to their learning. Um, and he goes into this whole thing about how like social media, I mean, they specialize in notifying and grabbing our children's attention. And it's just so disruptive and something has to be done about it. And I, I agree with that. Um, like I shared, it's, it's used to cause a lot of hurt and harm, but also it's impacting our, our students' attention span. Um, one of the things that I would always tell my son early on in his teenage years is, you know, there's just straight out, baby, you're going to get a hump in your back, keeping your head hung over over there on that, on that phone all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and we had to set hours where he could uh, utilize his phone and use his game. And of course that kind of goes out the window when they get up, you know, 11th and 12th grade, you can't really do that, but um, it's not healthy for them. It's keeping them from having wonderful conversations. It's keeping them from being extremely engaged in that high quality instruction that's being offered because you, the teacher has to, work so hard to monitor what's actually on the screen instead of being, you know, truly in deep thinking while teaching, you've got to make sure that they're not actually messaging, that they're not actually on social media or doing something else that has nothing to do with the lesson. And that's even a struggle with uh, the use of Chromebooks in classrooms. So let's kind of dive into like how a district can pull this off. And and I'm curious because you said you guys aren't allowing cell phones in in your district. Um, Mm -hmm. The one out of Pennsylvania, they were recommending, I think the law was recommending actually using Yonder pouches these are those pouches you see at some concerts and comedians mm-hmm. offer them and i've used one before basically you get this little pouch you stick your phone or whatever electronic device in it it seals and it can only be unsealed at a you know yonder unsealing place um mm-hmm. that seems to really like slow down the entering and the exiting of school if you're bringing in you know thousands of kids on a daily basis and having to go through this whole pouch thing on the enter and exit that seems kind of messy and i also as a parent like the idea to know that if there is a, God forbid, a school shooting, then I can reach my child, right? Um, well, and so that's the reason why that's that's an extreme measure. But I think it's going to um, boil down to consistency, um, everyone being on the same page, lots of open communication and regular communication with parents and students to help them understand. Um, but when you start taking away cell phones, here's some things that we need to think about. We need to think about smart watches. Mm-hmm. We need to think about when we're using Apple devices and you have an Apple phone. I mean, you can still get all of your messages <laughs> and never, you know, stop communicating um, on your laptop. So it's just a lot more to think about than to just say, don't bring your cell phones to school because a child can say, okay, no problem. I'll yeah. just pull out my iPad. Right. And so, so what do you guys do at your school district? Um, I think it's just a lot of communication and helping parents and students understand if they're used inappropriately. We still have policies in place where we will actually confiscate cell phones, especially if they are utilized um, in an extremely inappropriate way. And in some instances, requiring the parent to come and retrieve the device. And then right. on second and third steps, um, it stays. Now you think about, well, can they actually keep a cell phone that a parent is paying for? I would never go down the line of arguing with that parent, but we would have to have some understanding of the severe consequences, but also the impact that that child is making on either another student or a classroom um, as far as instruction is concerned and or their lack of um, gaining knowledge by being focused on the telephone. And I really haven't had um, 
any, should I say, knockdown drag outs with parents over the last eight years, the last two districts I've been in have very strong cell phone policies. And I just, you know, regularly reminded them it's part of our morning announcements. I mean, clear communication, I think it's a big deal. But if you did not have a cell phone policy in place as far as prohibiting them, then you've got to make sure much more communication than a single statement on a report card or a single um, article coming out. You've got to have a very aggressive um, campaign before school returns and all through um, the school year. I'll describe the way my teenager described high school um, and having a laxed cell phone policy. He says that uh, basically... You know, you're not really most teachers like you can't pull it out in class, but he says mm-hmm. you see all the time kids down by their side, you know, doing the whole cell phone thing, trying to keep it out mm-hmm. of the view of the teacher. So that happens. He says as soon as you step into the hallway, everyone pulls out their phones because it's allowed in the hallways, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it, it causes congestion. He says mm-hmm. cyberbullying starts taking place in the hallways, you know, talking about mm-hmm. people and things are spreading through the school actively during Correct. the day. And you can never really stop that altogether, but it's got to be difficult you know, to be a teen and and dealing with that. Um, And he says, you know, so that's where the rules are changing. They're not going to have that, um, that safe space in the hallways. They don't want to see them at all. I am interested to see if three or 400 children pull out their cell phones during a passing period, how they will go about, you know, combating that. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, I feel like it's also healthy just because, and I'm guilty of it. I think we, most of us listening probably are, but Cell phone usage is is very similar to, um, you know, the way we walk to a refrigerator and open the door when we're not hungry and we're just looking for something or we someone who smokes, maybe we'll put a cigarette in their mouth just because it's this habit. Um, And I think to at least give our children that break for eight hours, we might break that habit a little bit for later in the evening. I think that it could help. But when we think about our older students, um, planning, organizing, being concerned about pickup, getting to practices. that type of information is going to be stalled. And I wonder how that will impact households. Yeah, that's true. Cause there have been times where I've texted my son during the day and it'll be like, Hey, did you grab your shin guards or something like that? And then that's I know correct. it might be an hour or two, but I'll get a response usually while he's still technically mm-hmm. in school. Um, and, and that has right been there in convenient. class. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's been convenient. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure there would be, um, some parent complaints and of course the students are going to complain, but I really just, I'm one person's opinion. I feel like it's the right thing to do. It's gotta be a distraction and it's not, it shouldn't be put on teachers to regulate cell phones all by themselves. So here's the funny thing about it. If we think back to what did we do? When we were in school and we did not have cell phones, they weren't even heard of, we passed notes. Right. And that was the thing to be called to the office for, to receive detention for, passing notes in class. So will they go back to passing notes or are they going to sneak and use that cell phone and have it confiscated? That's the question. I don't know. Well, it's going to be curious to see what Pennsylvania does. I don't know if we'll see a state law pass, but... um, I think that's extreme. Right. But I think it could be helpful. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this is going to be a trend uh, for the next school year, uh, next year or two, we're going to probably see more and more cell phone regulation throughout the country where it's not already being regulated. All right, Christina, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to teach us the art of talking with children. In fact, the art of talking with children is the title of Rebecca Rowland's latest book. Rebecca is a speech pathologist, writer, and Harvard lecturer, and she's going to give us tips on how to use back and forth conversation to get in sync with students, as well as better understand students' temperaments and maybe even our own. Rebecca, welcome to Class Dismissed. 
Great. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, this is exciting because I, I don't know that we've really ever on this show kind of taken a, a dive into the the language and and how important it is when communicating with children. And and as I was reading through notes and kind of doing some background research on you, it really was hitting close to home to me because I have a seven-year-old now and, and I always have those opportunities to, you know, ride in the car with her. She doesn't have an iPad. I'm, I'm focused, you yeah. know, and, and I feel like that's always a great time to have these conversations. Um, and I think the the term that you like to put on these deeper conversations, I think you call it rich talk. Is that right? Yeah. So it's it's this idea of just being a little bit more intentional with our conversations and actually taking the time to have conversations that are adaptive, meaning they're kind of meeting children or students where they are. They're back and forth. So we're actually listening as much as we're talking. And they're really driven by what the child or student is interested in or worried about what's on their mind. Um, and I found that those three combined really do make for more meaningful and intentional talk. Okay, so as a teacher or parent, help me find of a, help me describe a way to determine whether or not I'm good at this or not. Like, is there anything <laughs> that you might say, well, if you're not having conversations like this, you might not be doing it right. Yeah. So one thing I would think, um, especially of starting with, is just paying attention to the balance of talk and silence between you and whoever you're talking with, whether it's a child or a student in the classroom. Um, do you find just, you know, take a little bit of time and notice the next time you have an interaction? Do you find that you're the one doing almost all of the talking, almost none of the talking? Or is there something in between? Um, and you know, people find themselves all over the spectrum here and sometimes it can be surprising. So we often think we're having a back and forth when really we're the ones either doing a lot of the lecturing or on the contrary, we're pulling back so much that students aren't getting as much feedback as they'd like. So I think that balance aspect is one really key one to start with. Yeah. I, I mean, I know <laughs> I don't want to share any names, but I have a friend that I talk to <laughs> on the phone sometimes and like. I'll look down at like my phone, I'll, like pull it off my ear and look at the little clock. And it, I'm like nine minutes in and I've, I've hardly gotten a word. <laughs> oh, in. These are adults, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, so, exactly. so, so I guess we really want, uh, whether it's anybody we're talking to is to have somewhat of a healthy balance, right? Exactly. I think it's a healthy balance. And even it's just this feedback that you're giving to help children and students just expand on what they're thinking to really stretch them. So not just the balance of talk and silence, but even in terms of the types of questions and comments that we're making, how much are we actually supporting students to kind of expand on what they're already doing? Okay, so that's important. So the, the feedback, if you can help describe, I don't know if it's best to do this as an example, um, like maybe that is, can you give me an example of a, a time where like an adult or a teacher should be offering better feedback? Yeah, so I actually have developed what I'm calling the Rich Talk question map, where I really focus on thinking about um, how open or close-ended are your questions? So is there one right answer or are there multiple right answers? Um, and then also how abstract or concrete are you being? So is it something that's very much hard to see? So a big topic like war or peace, or is it something that's right in front of you? So about, you know, the ice cream you're eating or the radio show you're listening to or something like that. Um, and so I think, um, oftentimes we tend to over-focus, especially with younger students, on close-ended questions. So we think things like, well, where is the monkey going? Or, you know, how far did the dog run? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas um, oftentimes, even young children have a lot bigger ideas and questions that we could ask. So things like, 
well, what would you do if you were in that dog's position? Or, you know, how else could the story have ended? That kind of thing. And that really gives more of an opportunity for students to really expand on what they were already thinking and kind of stretch their imaginations. Yeah, I, I really like that tip. Um, it, rather than, yeah, that, that, that's definitely something I'm going to use with my own daughter, uh, for sure. And I can see it being used in the classroom a lot. So how do you, I know you, you give lectures and stuff. How do you talk to, say, a group of educators? Actually, it's funny because in my book, I separate things out into seven different themes. So um, I go through things like how to ask questions to help learning um, happen more deeply or things like play and creativity confidence, etc. So I found that actually, it's not that all of these things are in separate boxes, but actually in laying them out separately, it can really help in kind of focusing on one thing at a time. And I do think that's helpful just as a tip as well Is just, if you want to try to ask these deeper questions or try to have these more moments of rich talk, um, to not feel like you have to do it all at once, to really start small and to kind of pick one or two areas of emphasis um, to start with and to see well, can I support students in this specific area? Otherwise, it can feel overwhelming. So I think focusing on one or two to start with can be really useful. When did you determine, all right, this is something I need to write a book about? Because I know you're, you're a speech pathologist. Um, I mean, was it kind of as you were doing that, you started to realize, like, I don't know if people realize there's a technique to this. Yes, actually, it was funny, um, because it was actually becoming a parent. Um, for, for me, I realized I was with my husband, um, sitting in our playroom, actually, when my daughter was, you know, about five years old. And we had just finished the weekend. And we were very busy. We had done a ton of things. And I said to him, actually, it's just funny that I've been thinking a lot in my research about, you know, how much talk matters and back and forth talk. But I actually can't think of anything in particular that we talked about all weekend. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's really, it's kind of ironic. And I was like, what do you, you know, what did we talk about? Do you remember? You know, and he kind of looked at me and said like, oh, I actually, I have no idea either. <laughs> and um, that for me was sort of a moment that I found really interesting because as a speech pathologist, this was actually my professional focus, actually thinking about back and forth talk. And I'd done a ton of research on it. But as a parent, I realized it is so easy to just be on autopilot and not to really bring all of what I knew into my life and into the, you know, the work of, with parents and so on. And I realized that many other parents and teachers were feeling similarly, that we often don't pay attention to our everyday talk. So that's really what led me to write this was the discrepancy between what I knew um, could happen and then what I saw happening. So, I mean, what skills did you start applying in your real life then? Like, how did you change that? Yeah, so I started trying actually in small kind of experimental ways. And I talk about the journey a lot um, in the book where, um, for example, um, I talk about kind of mistake conversations, which I started having. So uh, my daughter actually did not like to make mistakes in preschool. She would blame them on other people if something bad happened or she you know, made a choice that she didn't like. She would blame it on someone else. Um, and so actually one day I decided to start um, at the dinner table just talking about some kind of small, you know, minor mistake that I had made that day. And my husband would talk about his quote unquote mistake of the day. And we would discuss kind of what the mistake was, but also why we thought it would happen and how we attempted to repair it. Um, so we kind of gave ourselves some compassion and there was humor in that. Um, so for example, you know, I'd use it. Um, one example was I pushed the wrong button on the elevator. It was a very tall elevator. So I ended up going up, you know, 20 flights or something like that. Um, and meeting all these people along the way when I really had meant to go down. Um, and so that was just one small example. And actually by modeling that attitude of just taking a relaxed attitude towards mistakes, but also analyzing them out loud and strategizing, 
um, that really supported my daughter actually to not only own up to mistakes, but to really kind of be creative about how she might solve them in the future. Did she like start admitting mistakes that she's made recently at the same time? She did. Actually, it was funny because it wasn't immediate for sure. So at the first couple of nights, um, she said, like, I don't make any mistakes. You know, this is something you can do that, but I don't do it. But she would laugh. You know, she laughed when she heard our mistakes because they weren't very serious and they were a little silly. Um, And then actually, I, you know, forgot to do it one night and she reminded me. So she was like, oh, you know, what about your mistakes? What were your mistakes? You know, and um, and I told her, and she, and at that point, she wanted to, you know, add in her own. So it was almost like this. I didn't push her or pressure her, and I think that was part of why it was helpful because she didn't feel as though she had to contribute. She was just observing for a while, but then she actually wanted to contribute after a certain point. I like the idea that you know you kind of knew what you wanted to get out of the conversation. I guess if anything, I guess the best way to describe it, it was premeditated. You're like, I want to have this discussion about mistakes. And I guess that's okay, whether we're a parent or teacher or whatever. Like, I just need to think of a way to approach it maybe differently. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is I didn't really have sort of an outcome. Like my plan wasn't, I'm going to you know, have her talk about her mistake and analyze it. My plan was really more, and I think this is a useful tip too, is it's more about an environment that I wanted to create. So it was more about the fact of, I want to create a place in our home where she feels okay about, you know, the fact that everyone's making mistakes. And this is kind of a normalized thing. And we can take kind of a relaxed attitude toward it. So I do think that if you are um, coming in with the idea that you're going to make a specific point or have someone respond in a specific way, it often isn't going to turn out the way you want. Um, but I think it can work a lot better and be more effective if you come in with the idea of, well, what kind of attitude do I want to support here? Or what kind of you know shift do I want to um, have in this environment? I, I know you have some experience um, in having these conversations and sometimes difficult conversations about, say, like differences and combating biases. And do you have any advice for teachers out there on how they can, can broach those conversations? Yeah. So one thing I think it's very important first is just um, to really establish a culture where we celebrate differences, where just sort of the fundamental attitude is that there are differences among people in lots of ways, and that this difference actually brings life, brings creativity, and diversity is a positive. So I think just by establishing that as a kind of initial foundation is really helpful before diving into these conversations um, to support that fact that we're going to approach difference as something that um, enriches us rather than something that detracts from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after that, really talking about how we all are different in some way. So I think oftentimes, you know, students see someone who may dress differently or have a different religion or so on, and they get pointed out as, well, they're the quote unquote different one. Um, but helping actually all students see that each of them has their own set of differences. So maybe they're the ones who speak a different language at home, or they're the ones who come from Ireland or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and helping students be self-reflective about the ways in which they are different from others um, can be a really helpful start into, in terms of welcoming differences in others as well. I was in an environment where there was a, a teenager around and um, I don't even know if I'm going to share this on the show or not, but we're going to give it a shot. So, so this teenager sure. um, is like, says to me and, and the, the mother there, they're like, middle school is so weird now. There's kids there and they're kind of like describing this, I guess, a small trend, a small group of people who dress they, as they describe funny. They think they're cats. They act like they're cats. They call themselves furries and so forth. And they're going into it. And I didn't really know... Like, I didn't want to participate in, like, you could tell they were kind of making fun of them. And I didn't really want to participate in that. And so all, all I could think to really say was like, 
wow, like more power to them. I hope, you know, like I, that's cool that they can express, express themselves and be themselves. Yeah, but, yeah. But like, like, how would you approach a conversation like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of ways. And I do think it is an art because um, I do really emphasize that it does also have to work with your style, right? So what I say may not work for you because you wouldn't approach it that way, et cetera. But, um, but I think one thing I would keep in mind is approaching these conversations with an attitude of curiosity about the difference. So not necessarily like, oh, that's, that is so weird. Oh, let's look at how we can make fun of them, you know, but definitely kind of more of the opposite of just like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's actually, I've approached, um, sometimes we see um, people, you know, walking from like anime conventions around Boston and Mm -hmm. we talk about it. We sort of like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what character she's trying to be. And then even more deeply, like, I wonder, you know, and I actually wonder myself. So I do ask these questions kind of out loud of like, oh, I wonder why they're doing that. Like, what is it that they find interesting in that? Like, I don't do that myself. Um, I don't really totally understand why people do that. But I think it must be interesting to a lot of people because a lot of people seem to be doing this, you know. And so I'm like just asking out loud, actually, my own curiosity of like, oh, I wonder, is it a community that they're looking for that they're finding here? Or is it like the creativity of figuring out what kind of character to be like, I'm curious what, what, why people might like to do that. Like, why do you think people might like to do that? Um, And kind of helping them almost empathize in a creative way. Like clearly that's a choice that they've made. It's a very visible choice, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm curious about that choice. Like, that's not my choice. I don't think that that will be my choice, although I don't know. Um, But I'm just, I'd like to know. And I'd like, and I think we could all, learn something by thinking it out together. And even by maybe if we ever meet one of them in person, I think it would be great if we asked them like out of curiosity, what draws you to this? Um, And almost think like a reporter in some way, not as someone who's criticizing, but just like, oh, I'd like to know your story. Like, what is it about this that you like? Yeah, Um, no, I think that can be really helpful. I used to be a reporter. I was a news director too for a while. And and it's amazing how you can disarm somebody and really almost, you know, pump the brakes in, in an intense situation just by asking questions and, and by phrasing things as questions. Even if you already know the answer and you have your own assumptions, it, that question just kind of, yeah, opens up that dialogue a little bit there. I mean, I think just um, to shift a little bit, I, th- I think there's kind of like the making fun of conversation and just to shift that a little bit towards like the, Oh, I'm curious about you rather than I think you're X negative attribute, you know, silly, ridiculous, whatever. Um, I think can really help students just feel like, Oh, the conversation is different now. So if, if somebody was to um, want your book, like what um, are the big takeaways? Like what are they going to pick up if they were to go out and purchase uh, the art of talking with children? What I really try in the chapters is that in each chapter, I lay out kind of what is the latest research around this? So what actually do we know about how to enhance empathy in students? What do we know about building confidence in students? And then I use my own stories and clinical stories to show, well, how does this actually play out in practice? So I really attempt to get very on the ground, very much um, not just academic ivory tower theory, but I actually offer sort of sample tips, strategies, like here's even the ways that you could shift a conversation from X to Y. um, So that, you know, whoever's reading it really does come away with a sense of now I have a toolbox of strategies that I could apply. I mean, who's really your target with your book? Yeah, so I'd say there's really two target audiences. So one is just um, people who are parents, caregivers who are, you know, with children at home. Um, And one is educators, therapists, clinicians, people who work with 
students or with families professionally. And so that's been really fun and interesting because I think um, obviously we talk with children either at home, at school, in clinical settings. And I've really found that both audiences have been interested in kind of how to enhance conversations. Yeah, no doubt. If somebody wants to find the art of talking with children, what's the best way to do that? Um, So I'd say they should go to my website. So it's just www.rebeccaroland.com with two C's and two L's. Um, And then they can find it through links there. Um, They can also find it on Amazon or through HarperCollins. And the full title is The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Confidence, and Creativity in Kids, correct? Yes, exactly. All righty. Well, Rebecca, it's been a pleasure. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I would say um, probably art or English, uh, because I think the self-expression is key for me. Okay. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I think we're not teaching self-awareness. I think self-awareness is a critical skill that goes across all areas. And we tend to forget about it either in academics or even in social emotional learning. Yeah. So elaborate on that a little bit for me, like self-awareness, like who I am as a person, like is what you're saying? Yeah, um, not not only. So who I am as a person kind of identity, but even in terms of the metacognitive process, I think we don't actually teach that um, beyond, say, teaching reading strategies. But there's not so much about thinking about my thought processes across subjects that could really support students in learning, but also even understanding their own strengths and weaknesses. Okay, good. What does every child deserve? So I'd say every child deserves to be truly seen, heard, and understood. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I would say, um, I think, generalized burnout, both from the educator perspective and from the student perspective. What's the best gift to give an educator? So are we talking about um, emotion? Are we talking about concrete gifts or about (laughs) abstract gifts? That's the fun of the question, because sometimes people give us a concrete (laughs) gift and sometimes people give us something a little bit more abstract. So I always like just to kind of let the person decide. Yes, I I think um, a sounding board, I would say. I think so many teachers don't actually have someone there, not just for support, but someone there to strategize with, to process with. And I think to have another person who's in the field who can help with that is critical. Which teacher changed your life? Um, I would say my high school English teacher because she really supported my writing, but even just my self-expression kind of as a person. And I continue to be in touch with her and I really respect her work as well. That's cool. And you were able to say thank you, I guess, later on in life. right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Last question. Which book did you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably The Scaffold Effect. Um, I think that book really does a great job in terms of talking through how to support students in moving slightly further than they're able to do in ways that are really, um, really thoughtful and also research-based. And I'm trying to look that up real quick to see who the author is just in case oh, yeah, see, somebody's it's, looking. It's really hard. Oh, yeah. It's it looks hard like, to pronounce. It does look Harold like Harold Koplowitz. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Harold Koplowitz. Is that is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, you are listening to Rebecca Rowland. Uh, again, that book is The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Confidence, and Creativity in Kids. Uh, Rebecca, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll have to have you on again in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>